Hello, welcome to Why Not Me. In life, we face many trials and obstacles, many challenges, and in the thick of it, we can be tempted to think, why me? But every obstacle presents an opportunity and every trial can bring triumph. So I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of, why not me? When, when in the middle of it, when things are tough, look around and think, why not me? It's, it's happening for a purpose. And then when success is at your doorstep and all you have to do is open it, you may find yourself hesitating, questioning, is this for me? Do I deserve this? And I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of why not me? Throw the door open wide, shout to the world, why not me? Embrace your success. I'm your coach, Todd Halls. I'm grateful to have you on this journey. Welcome to Why Not Me. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Why Not Me, Turning Trials into Triumphs, Seeking and Embracing Success. I said welcome back. If this is your first time, welcome here. Glad you're here. I'm so thankful that you're tuning in, listeners. I'm Coach Todd Halls, your host. Grateful, grateful to be here and for this opportunity. I am super excited, as always, but super excited to uh, introduce our guest because uh, of her, her areas of expertise. Today, we have with us uh, Dr. Diane Mueller. Dr. Diane is a three-time successful entrepreneur. She founded uh, a couple of medical companies, The Libido Doctor and My Lime Doc. Um, she's also the founder of Femme Meets Fortune, and that's basically teaching women entrepreneurs how to accelerate the growth of their companies. Um, in addition to that, so she's got over 12 years of business experience. She's a highly sought after speaker on Lyme disease, women's entrepreneurship. Um, she's delivered keynote addresses to thousands across the world. And if that's not enough, she's also a best-selling author of uh, Use Your Mind to Heal Your Mold and Lime, A Survivor's Guide, and uh, a second edition uh, coming up. It's not in your mind, solutions and strategies for Lyme disease, mold illness, and chronic infections. Welcome to the show, Dr. Diane. I can't wait to hear all about these things. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. And I should start off by just, I realized we should update my bio that we are sending out because the first edition of that book is no longer available because the second edition has been actually published. So that one is also a bestseller. So Oh, yes, we well, can go from fantastic. there. <laughs> Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So how, how did we get here? Let us, yeah, just what, what's, what's been your journey that leads you to be on a podcast talking about uh, the, being the Lyme doc and the libido doc and mold and some of the other illnesses that you deal with? Yeah, you know, so many of these these stories, right? They're really like the the pain to purpose or the pain to to passion type of stories, right? So my story began at a young age and I had chronic constipation and after quite a few years nobody knew what it was. I had that IBS label which just bent like, okay, well, we don't know what this is. We just know this is not normal and I was just told to go about my day and it was pretty, you know, that was like a pretty frustrating symptom just because of the random impacts. Like, like I would travel and sometimes have to travel with multiple sizes of pants because I could become so incredibly bloated that I could literally go up multiple pant sizes in the matter of like a couple of days. So it was like incredibly uncomfortable. 
So that's actually what led me into holistic medical school, into naturopathic medical school. And it was in, in school where I started working on finding the root cause of that, bacteria, parasites, a, a lot of different things. But unfortunately, that's also when things took a turn for the worse. And I started developing symptoms such as depersonalization, where it was almost like the sensation that I was outside of my body and looking down into my body. I would have memory loss, forget where I lived, I had pain so bad that it would feel sometimes like my leg was being sawed off. And despite some of those symptoms being pretty abnormal, it was very easy in medical school when there's so much stress to just kind of get this label of, well, that's medical school syndrome, right? And so you're just tired. Everybody's tired. Everybody has weird symptoms. That's what happens in school is you start taking these classes and it's like, I have that disease and that disease and that disease and that disease because you're so tired and exhausted. So it wasn't until I got out of school, my friends started getting normal and they started feeling like their energy and their vitality would come back. And I was like thinking about moving to a deserted island to live out my days. Like I was pretty sure I was dying. It was so bad. And that's when I started doing more investigative research because I realized, well, it's no longer medical school syndrome. My friends are feeling great. And that's when I found Lyme disease, mold illness, and all those things. So that really began that. And then the libido side of things really came from, in, in some ways, a pain to pleasure story as well. I obviously lost my libido during all that time, but I became really interested in the conversation of libido for two reasons. One, when I started seeing my chronic disease patients, all of a sudden they would get well, their libido would return. But two, after going through marriage and divorce and seeing what was happening in the relationship, like throughout the end, when things are just, we were just really growing apart and really seeing that change in libido and taking classes and taking tons of relationship classes and all these different things that really taught me a lot about relationships, about sexuality, about sexual dysfunction. And so that was kind of my, my pleasure story, pain to pleasure story there. Hmm. Fascinating journey. Very, very, yeah. Yeah. So which of those, well, I think we should unpack both areas. Uh, and, and actually, uh, you mentioned that they're intertwined a little bit. So it's not exactly two separate things. Um, that there's some, um, at least as it would seem, there's some crossover. The, the two are related at some point. So if you would, let's just, um, let's start. You, you pick. Let's unpack one or both, both together. But let's explore um, both sides of that practice. Sure. So, I mean, the things you really understand about Lyme disease and mold illness and that side of things. So the things to really understand there, anybody that's listening, like one of the things to really start understanding, because it's so easy that say ticks and Lyme disease, a lot of people think like, well, I don't have this. I didn't grow up in Vermont or Connecticut or one of these East Coast, New England states of the United States. And one of the first things to understand is that Lyme and mold illness, and I'll explain what mold illness is more, but they're the great mimickers. So they act like a lot of different diseases. And so the classic thing, if you're listening and you happen mm -hmm. to be saying like, well, I wonder if I could have those disease or my kids or my, you know, my spouse or my partner or whatever. One of the things to really understand is if you have 
a lot of symptoms and the symptoms don't have a cause or they have a label that doesn't have a cause. And I'll give you examples of that in a minute. You want to consider ruling out things like Lyme and mold. So specific examples of symptoms that could occur. And this is a very big laundry list, right? So it can be things like headaches, migraines, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, brain fog, dementia, PMS. I could go on and on and on and on, right? Joint pain, sexual dysfunction, and more right? So all of these different things can really be related to Lyme disease, mold illness. And if you notice in that list, I'm often talking about things that we think about from different symptoms, right? So if I'm saying PMS, like typically if somebody has PMS, they're going to go to a family doctor or a gynecologist. And then if we have headaches, they're going to go to a neurologist. So essentially what we're saying when we're looking at the symptom picture and we're thinking like, oh gosh, could I have Lyme or mold? We're thinking about these are types of illnesses, there's type of root causes that affect so many different organs and systems that if you were to go to, say, conventional standards of care, you would probably need to see like maybe a half dozen doctors or more to get the people with the background to manage whatever symptom it is. So if it looks like that and you have so many different symptoms and you're like, well, I have to see my neurologist for this and I have to see my gastroenterologist for this, my cardiologist for this and my gynecologist for this. If that sounds like you or nobody knows why you have the symptoms you do, this is a big keynote red flag for having Lyme or mold. So then unpacking the mold stuff a little bit more. So essentially mold and mycotoxin illness. So what mold and mycotoxin illness is, is a genetic condition. So it's a genetic condition that essentially people can have immunological abnormalities in their genes. And what the immune system does when you have this abnormality, and it's estimated this abnormality affects 26% of the population. So it's not small. And essentially what we see is people with this genetic abnormality, what will wind up happening is their body will not be able to sense the toxins from mold. So essentially somebody breathes toxins in where somebody without this genetic anomaly, the immune system's like, oh, toxin, puts a tag on it, the immune system flushes it right out. Well, if you have this anomaly, the immune system doesn't tag it appropriately, which basically means it doesn't see it. And this is where you can get a huge amount of these toxins building up in your body, in your cells, and you can find this in your urine. There's urine tests for this. Now, it's important to understand that this is not an allergy. A lot of people, when they go to their standard doctors, they're like, oh, I'm going to go get allergy tested. You know, maybe I heard this podcast and I'm going to go get allergy tested now, right? It's important to understand that we don't want to get allergy tested for this. I mean, you can, and some people do have legitimate allergies, but it's a separate thing because again, we're talking about the toxins and a genetic problem with the toxins. And so essentially... With that, what you want to do is you want to be working with a provider that's going to actually run a urinary test to actually test and see if you have those toxins inside of you, which get excreted in the urine. And Lyme and mold, you know, I gave you a lot of those symptoms from a standpoint of Lyme, but really the symptoms I mentioned for Lyme also really go with mold. They're both the great Mm -hmm. mimickers. They can both cause a lot of the same things. And sometimes we, and like really most of the time, we don't know if we have one or both of these things unless we test for them both because they look so, so, so similar. Questions on any of that? Should I pause? 
Um, you can pause. <laughs> I do have a couple questions. Um, and I'm glad you made the distinction between um, between you know, mold illness and allergies, because there are there are mold allergies. Some folks are allergic, um, and this is different. Do they? Is there often an overlap? Is somebody with aller a mold allergy more likely to experience this, or not necessarily? Uh, so that's question one. Um, and then the second question is, if it's a genetic, what's the likelihood that you're passing it to your, if, if, if you've got it, what's the likelihood you're passing it to your children? Is it just an automatic, yep, that's going to be in the, that's in the, that's in the DNA, it's getting passed or not necessarily? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. They're both, they both are. So essentially there's not say a direct relationship between if you have toxic elevation of the urinary mycotoxins. And if you have that, that allergy, like I was talking about, there's not a direct correlation to those things. So it is way more common. I find to have people with the toxins building up than actually have the allergy, but technically speaking, you can have both. Um, there are, there are two very, very, very different ways that the immune system is responding so it's, it's truly not related from that standpoint. The only way it's related is like, well, you could have an allergy to the same mold that happens to be built, the mycotoxin, the toxin from that mold happens to be building up in the body, right? But not a, not a direct relationship in the way the body functions to manifest those different abnormalities. And then okay. secondly, as far as like passing this on genetically, it really, we really don't know as far as like, you really don't know without testing. So, you know, sure, you know, you could have a, a kid with this, but this is not like a chromosomal type of uh, genetic abnormality. So it's really from a, from a passed down perspective. I don't re I don't truthfully have any sort of statistical data on that, but it is something that I do see. I do see a lot of times, like I have one family of four um, and I'm treating both parents and they both have it and they have two kids and the kids both have it. So and I've also seen families where not everybody in the family has it. So it does, we do, I do see some, um, some relationship there, but I'm truly not, I truly don't know, like statistically speaking with the likelihood of that is. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So we've been talking Lyme disease, mold illness, your book also, the title of your book also mentions chronic infections. What's that mean? Yeah. So when we're talking about chronic infections, a lot of what I'm talking about in the book are called, are really stealth pathogens. Stealth pathogens is a term for pathogens that essentially can go dormant. They can hide, they can get reactivated. So a basic one that we might put in the stealth pathogen category is chickenpox, right? Chickenpox, people, we don't see chickenpox so much anymore, but those of us that had it as children, we can actually get shingles as an adult, right? And so we know the pathogen isn't totally gone. We know it can be, it's living in our nerve roots and it can be reactivated oftentimes with stress. So that's an example of a very, very commonly talked about stealth pathogen. But Lyme disease is another stealth pathogen. And so we talked about Lyme. Stealth pathogens then are things that can basically go dormant. They can hide throughout our body. Sometimes like Lyme disease, they have different shapes. 
So it can actually change the way it actually looks to the body and looks to the immune system, which allows it to hide from the immune system. And then other examples of stealth pathogens are going to be things like Babesia, which is a parasite, Bartonella, which is a bacteria, other types of viruses, such as our herpes family of virus, our parvovirus, there's a lot of different viruses out there. But essentially, these are things, these stealth pathogens are things that can essentially come into our immune system. They can go into a dormant state, sometimes even creating a low level of inflammation when they're there hide in joint spaces even. I've seen these you know, stealth pathogens causing a lot of joint pain and all of a sudden you find the right pathogen and you treat that pathogen and joint pain for 20 years goes away. Some of these pathogens will live in the hyaluronic acid. That's the food for some of these pathogens and hyaluronic acid we have in our joints. So they'll hide oftentimes in areas of the body where they can multiply more easily or have a food source and that can cause a lot of pathology. So the thing with the stealth pathogens is they oftentimes, when we are running standards of care tests, they're not going to come up as positive unless they're reactivated, right? So it's like they can be harder to find and harder to address because of the fact that they are, that's kind of the, the definition of stealth, right? They're so deeply mm -hmm. entrenched into the body that it's like our immune system's not seeing them. And so it takes somebody with, you know, with, that can run the right types of lab tests in order to actually find these things and figure out what the, you know, root cause of somebody's illness actually is. Interesting. Okay. So what, so what can we do with all that? What do we, what do we do about it? Like, like, you know, you, and a bunch of different you have to forgive me because i got ideas bouncing around different things the so let's go to the title of the, the second the, the book that's been re released the second edition it's not in your mind mm -hmm. solutions and strategies for uh where'd you come up with that title what tell me tell me tell me what's behind that particular title yeah, the would. title is because of, sure, yeah, yeah. The title is because of how many people that actually come into my clinical practice and have been sick for so long. And with a lot of these stealth types of pathogens, a lot of the basic labs look normal. Or it's like small little dysfunctions, like maybe vitamin D is out of range a lot, or like red blood cell count is slightly low, or maybe thyroid is just like a little bit off, or maybe all of it's normal. And what typically happens when standard of care is not able to find something is it's oftentimes to, told to people that it's in their mind, that this is something that they are probably making up, that they're depressed, they should go on an antidepressant. So it's something that speaks to a lot of the clients that I work with. A lot of the clients that come to my office have been told at some point along their medical journey that it's in their mind. And the fact of the matter is like, yes, there are, you know, there is a category of sick people. There's a, you know, a label in um, medicine for it, which is Munchausen, which is a, a, a diagnosis, right? Where somebody is essentially creating all of these medical symptoms, right? So there is like, there are a small percentage of people that unfortunately have that, that illness, but 99% of people, when they're sick, they just need to trust themselves that their body is like really, really giving them a message. 
And I have never seen anybody in my practice that actually has that diagnosis. Every time we do these deeper labs, we find stuff and we find reasons for them to feel that way. So yeah, so that's really the the title of my book is really to speak to people like, hey, this isn't in your mind. Trust your intuition. If you are not feeling well and you wake up every day and you're like scanning your body for what's wrong, you're trying to figure out what's going on and you know, you feel in your like your your heart that like something's wrong. This is not in your head. You got to trust it. You know, that's really your intuition that's that's important and it's not in your head. So that's really the the reason for that. I absolutely love that. Um, and we could, we could stop right there, uh, but, but, but we won't hopefully. Uh, so a number of years ago, I had the occasion to be sitting with my doctor and they were trying to figure out what, you know, what was causing my ailment. And he, at one point he said, Todd, we don't think you're a quack. We really don't. And I hadn't mentioned, like I hadn't mentioned anything else, but the fact that he brought it up, told me, well, somebody's sure talking about it when I'm not around. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so then uh, just a few, a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, I don't remember the time frame, but I happened to be at, at Mayo with head of neurology. So a, yeah. a fairly accomplished person at, in the medical field and having a discussion about, you know, what could it be? And I'm listing these things. And he said, Todd, let me be frank. He said, really, we're not that far removed from the, from the witch doctor, the medicine doctor in, you know, in the, in the tribal system. Like there's, our bodies are just so complex and there's so much that we don't understand yet. Um, and so as, and as you were talking, uh, that just, that just came to mind. The fact that we collectively, I'll say we feel like something's wrong. Like maybe something's wrong. It's been there for years. We've learned to live with it because somewhere along the line, somebody said, well, maybe you just are you dreaming it? Are you imagining it? And so then we we suffer in silence because of the, the suggestion that maybe it is in our head. So all that was just to say thanks for the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. And it's it's so true. You know, I think one of the things that's really happened, unfortunately, as we've gotten further and further away from some of those tribal days, and and I say that very cautiously, right? Because modern medicine, like, clearly saves lives, like. Absolutely. Drugs, surgery, like there is, I, I, you know, I think modern medicine is very, very amazing at so many things. And one of the things that has happened as we've gotten, you know, more and more specialized in modern medicine is everything's gotten so segregated where it's like, you know, when we have all of these symptoms, like, okay, guts not working and cardiac systems not working. And you're seeing your neurologist, all these different things like we were talking about earlier. One of the biggest problems is there has, there's not really that person in, in the conventional world that's really looking for like, well, if you have symptoms that are affecting like, you know, 10 different body parts, like what could actually be the things that we should be looking for that really are, you know, systemic that aren't going to show up in just say like a standard blood culture. Right. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. really where we need to get is we need to get back to this area where we're looking at the body more holistically, not saying there's not place for specialists. Of course there is, but coming back to having a standard of care where it's like, okay, let's do this thing. where We're actually figuring out how all these pieces come together instead of acting like the body is this like segregation, like, you know, some of all parts instead of a whole part that works together. Yeah. Yeah. H- having the, 
a good generalist, so to speak, that can that can look at the whole system rather than one piece of the system at a time. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. 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 So let's jump to the other side, the other business now, the libido doctor. Sure. Yeah. Take it away. Yeah. Go. So essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to really be said about that. There's, there's so many different things. I mean, one of the things I like talking about a lot is this is a, you know, kind of a taboo topic and I'm trying to start normalizing this a lot more because one of the things I really feel when I look at studies around what a healthy sex drive can do is that it's a fundamental part of health. It's not quite to the level of, of sleep and water, but in many ways it can, it's ranks really high close to those things. And here's why. So one of the things a lot of people don't know is that a diminished sex drive is actually a very early warning sign of cardiovascular disease. And we see that, you know, that's more thought about in men. There's that easy association with men with erectile dysfunction. However, this is also an early warning sign for women of cardiovascular disease because for women to actually have functional genitalia, you need blood flow to that tissue. That erectile tissue is there and functions both in men and women very similarly. So that's a really important thing to understand that, that if you have a low libido, that could be a sign that there's actually this fundamental root issue. So we do see it, it is a symptom. But in many ways, it can also be a cause, right? So it can be a symptom of low cardiovascular issues, but here's how it can be. It, it can be related to a cause of other diseases. So libido drives and a healthy libido, a healthy sex drive drives us towards intimacy. And that can be full sexual intimacy, but that can even just be touch and cuddling and all those things that come with that. So oxytocin is a hormone that a lot of people know of as like the connection hormone, the love hormone. It's that hormone that gets released when a baby's born for that bonding between mom and baby. It's released at orgasm, but it's also released during touch, during cuddle, when we pet a pet, we, you know, we're snuggling with our dog or something, we release oxytocin. So oxytocin has been shown to do a lot of things. It can reduce cortisol. So cortisol is our stress hormone. A lot of people think of cortisol as only bad. Cortisol actually is not only bad. It also does a lot of different things that are really beneficial for the body. But oftentimes people have this huge overactive cortisol in our first world system because of stress, because of all the different movement we have to do. So oxytocin is actually one of our best ways of regulating cortisol. So oxytocin also improves sleep. It also has been shown to improve mood. When we are sexually active and we are sexually engaged with a partner, we also are releasing serotonin. So there's relationships between oxytocin, between sexuality and happiness. So it's like there's so much that happens from a preventing stress standpoint, as well as from a mood standpoint that that's really happening when we're using this regulatory system. And what people, you know, sometimes forget is like these bodies, we have pleasure. We have erogenous zones around these bodies. And these, this is here for a reason. It's like the same way we have like body parts that feel, and we have tactile sensation to feel hot and to feel cold. These pleasure systems around our body are here for us to release things like oxy, oxytocin to help our bodies be in balance. 
And I know from some of the clinical work I've done where sometimes we'll, we'll work and we'll prescribe women and in particular women, um, just because I work with mostly women, uh, oxytocin in a nasal spray, right? Intranasal oxytocin. And so I can see, and I can have, I have the reports and I've used it personally and I can see what happens when we use this as an anti-stress you know, technique. And it's amazing. It's like long overworked day, brain's tired, feel like you have nothing else to give that like overworked feeling that so many of us go through and a tiny little bit of this, it does require a prescription. And all of a sudden, like the stress response changes and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the ability to be present with a partner, with your child, all of a sudden the need for a glass of wine isn't there anymore. Like all of these amazing things. And while that's a prescription, we can actually get that own supply. Our body is primed to make this. Our body is primed to produce this by doing things that are pleasurable, petting a dog, cuddling with a partner, sexual intimacy, all of these types of things. So that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this, because I do think it's like, it's a key thing to lowering stress, to enjoying life more, to connecting more people with people we love, to bring us into a calmer state so we can have difficult conversations and be more effective and more loving in the way we communicate with people we care about. So there are so many good things about, you know, what can happen when we're really working on our sex drive. You mentioned that it's sometimes, so, so it can be a symptom and you mentioned cardiovascular disease and I'm going to just hit on that quickly because it's a, it could be a, well, a not so subtle, but subtle symptom that, that, you know, it may be related to that and was just uh, consuming the book Outlive and the statistic gets the number one symptom of heart disease. The first symptom usually is death, right? Like people have a massive heart attack and then, oh, they had heart problems. And I'm just saying yeah. that a lot as part of this conversation, because if you're experiencing some form of low libido, it could be a sign. It may be worth folks digging in, checking it out a little bit, do do some research. It's, it's more than just in, <laughs> inconvenient. So that being said, you also mentioned that it can be a cause. But then what causes it when it is a cause? Like what what else is behind it? Well, I mean, essentially there's low libido. It tends to be like from the cause of like what's going to cause low libido is going to be, you know, either the cardiovascular system, like we mentioned, hormones are definitely there. Neurological component is there. So if you're not getting the right neurological stimulation, we can also have um, an inflammatory type of impact. We can have psychological type of impact. Sometimes it's just that people are not having the right type of sex. And what I mean by that is like, there can be a, a sexual incompatibility between partners that oftentimes is very fixable and solvable if we communicate about it, right? But oftentimes we're not taught about how to communicate about this and the ego gets involved because usually with partnerships, there's this desire to provide pleasure to another partner, right? That's like ingrained in so many of us. And so it can be a very tricky thing to talk about with a partner because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to hurt their ego. And it can be a tricky, tricky thing to receive if not done well, because it can hurt. Right. So that's a, another thing I work with people in my libido practice is like, how do we have these difficult kind of conversations? Because one of the things that can happen, it's like, if, you know, if one person, for example, I mean, we'll just take a very simple example of like one person loves a position and another person is like, that position is like boring and I hate it and never doesn't even feel good. 
and we're not communicating, well, the libido is going to go down just from the sheer fact that we're not reaching the pleasure. Because the other thing that's driving libido is dopamine, right? It's the other thing that's driving sex drive. And because that's also related to what happens at the beginning of relationships and oftentimes in long-term monogamous relationships, why, you know, why the passion oftentimes goes away. And it's because in that beginning, we are essentially, we're getting this like dopamine hit. Dopamine's about motivation. It's about reward. So in the beginning of having a relationship with somebody, we're like thinking about them. And every time we think about them and we don't see them, we get a little dopamine hit. And that's motivating us a little more. And then we wait and we wait and wait. Maybe they text us. We get a little dopamine hit. And then we finally see them and we have a great time. And all of a sudden we get a big dopamine hit. Well, then there's a lot of space oftentimes in the beginning, right? Before we see somebody again. So the dopamine kind of resets, it rebuilds. And there's always that like novelty and that drive because of dopamine. Now, when we start living with somebody, when we get married, when all the life stuff happens and what winds up happening is that dopamine, we, we lose it because part of the ability to, for that dopamine to be created is that space, is that gap, is that wanting, I'm not going to have, have this thing for a little while, right? So that's part of that, that dopamine process. And so essentially when we lose that, one of the things that often happens too is this lack of drive and this lack of desire because it's just like the normalcy and all of that. And that's similarly like in this position example with sexual intimacy, where it's like, if we're, if we're like, we're not getting that dopamine because maybe we were like excited for this, this sex moment. And all of a sudden it's like, mm, that was like, I didn't feel connected at all. Or like that hurt a little bit, or it wasn't pleasurable at all then even in that moment, we're not getting that dopamine uh, release that's supposed to happen. When that happens, then we're not getting that, that reward, that signal to the brain that says, I really, really enjoyed that. I want more. So that's why we even have to break it down from like a standpoint of like, there are all these physical things, right? There's a cardiovascular, there's the hormones, there's a neurological, you know, and, and, and other reasons for this. But it also comes down to our relationship types how our communication is. Are we communicating about what's happening in the bedroom? Are we finding ways to keep it novelty, you know, keep the novelty even in long-term monogamy? So those are, yeah, those are some of the big ones that I would really, you know, tell people to look out for. Okay. Thank you. And and then um, what's, what's the best first step? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, so definitely, you know, things to know is like, you know, first step from just like an actionable step today, right? So there's a couple of things we can say. So if like the chronic disease stuff reside, like, you know, resonated with you, first actionable step today is get your labs tested if you can. But I would say if you can't do that, you can find my clinic at mylimedoc.com. But if you can't get your labs test done today, the next thing I would really say, actionable step from that standpoint, start breath work or start some other nervous system technique, something to calm the nervous system, because there's always going to be nervous system regulation with mold and Lyme. And the number one thing that I see that is across the board essential for people with preventing reincurrence and healing from those types of things is getting the nervous system to not hyper overreact. And that's something you can do for free in the comfort of your own home, you know, some sort of breath work, guided visualization, meditation practice, 
you know, qigong, anything that is that really present type of thing that's going to calm the nervous system. There's a lot of things out there. DNRS, the Gupta programs, one of my favorites. So a lot of good stuff. But from a free standpoint, you know, just doing the breath work and, you know, some sort of nervous system thing. If you need help, check my clinic out at mylimedoc.com. And then on the libido side of things, so I would say the number one thing from the libido side of things to start with is start with yourself. The practice of sexuality has to start with ourselves. And simply put, the easiest to practice oneself is actually just becoming present in one's own body. So many times it's so easy. And this happens to women more than men just because of the impact of estrogen on women versus men. Like men have much more of a focused awareness. Women have much more of a diffuse awareness. We take in more information about our surroundings. And both of these qualities are neither good or bad. They both have their pluses and minuses. But because of that, women have more of a tendency in intimate moments to have these moments where it's like, crap, thinking about the grocery list or whatever, right? That happens because women have that tendency. And so part of this is becoming more in tune with being in the moment and practicing that and practicing our own body. Learn your body, learn what feels good. You know, does it feel good when you stroke your arm? You know, basic things like that, like learn your body. And that's the, you know, that's the thing that I would say is the free intro step from a where to start from an actionable standpoint. And then in my libido side, I do only work with women. I work in group programs on that side. And I do that because there's research that talks about how talking about sex helps to relieve sexual dysfunction. And this is such a taboo topic that I only work in, in that one with, with women so that we have a safe space where people feel like they can talk easily about all their various, you know, things that come up in their sexual space. And they feel like they can do that with people that are just like them. So it really creates that, that place where we can talk, we can learn, we can figure out the root cause. We could talk strategy around communication and more so that you can find that at my libido doc. So super easy of my line doc, my libido doc, both.com. Awesome. 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 Uh, so something we didn't get to, um, and, uh, in, in reading the info that was sent over, um, pleasure and business, you, you, you help women entrepreneurs specifically. Um, and yeah, we're, you know, we're getting a bit long on the time. But that's okay. Cause I'm curious, just <laughs> to, let's talk about that because oftentimes business is exciting. Um, and at times it's pleasurable now it is. But for a number of years, and you know, my backstory, it didn't it didn't feel very pleasurable at all. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be at a, at a different place now. But I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that could benefit from just a, a quick what what what's pleasure and business all about. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the women I work with, and that is also I only work with women on that part of my practice, also, and or that business, also, I should say. And a lot of the women I work with are fairly early on in their business career. They, you know, maybe even at it for a few years, but they're just really at this point where it's like try something, make a little progress, doesn't work, or they're in that fire hose where it's like, I have to take this Instagram course and this YouTube and everything is like, and then it's just mayhem of overwhelm because there's this stress of making money and all of this. And what winds up happening is we wind up getting so locked on to the the logistical part of our brain, the producing that we actually many times don't take time for allowing that space 
where the creative sides that comes, you know, comes on. Cause for most of us, in my experience with people I've interviewed and talked to, for most of us, most people wind up being very, very, you know, it's like, it's harder to switch back and forth. We're either in like problem solving mode and we're like, okay, learning the course, putting the material out there, doing all the things, or we're in the mode of, okay, well, I'm going to vision and create and think of all the different ways I can do. And it's really hard for most people to switch back and forth between those different brain states super easily. And as business owners, both of these things are important, but usually in startup scenarios, we get locked more into that production mode. At least that's what I find in, in most of the women that make their way to me. So essentially, it really is. It's bringing in some of the concepts from libido doctor work around oxytocin on pleasure and really seeing like, okay, well, what happens? We, you know, we have more serotonin, we have more motivation, we have less stress, we have more enjoyment. So it's helping women learn how to more easily access those states so that 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 startup phase, which as you mentioned, is like not typically pleasurable because it's so grueling and there's this, you know, part where it's like, okay, like I remember when I first started my business, I was worried, I was working three part-time jobs, getting my practice up and going. And I was worried about my lights being turned off. You know, I was working 80 hour weeks and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be paid my electrical bills this month. It was crazy. And so that initial part of getting this up and going is just such a wild ride. So it is learning business strategies. It's learning how to put together, you know, your 90 day plan, your, your, your plan, how to hire, how to delegate, how to market, how to, you know, talk, you know, talked about your product in a way that your customers understand what you're offering, all of those kind of things. But it's also about how to use the power of oxytocin to create more pleasure in your life so that you can sustain and make it through the point where things actually start to roll more easily again. Love that. What a gift. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And so if somebody's interested in in connecting with you on that front, what's the what's the best way? Yeah, super easy. You go find me at Fem Meets Fortune and you fill out an application. And if you're a good fit, we'll get on a call and take it from there. Awesome. 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 So you mentioned Fem Meets Fortune. You mentioned uh, libidodoc.com, limedoc.com. Any any other yeah. ways, uh, any social media channels people can see you on, follow you on? Yeah, I mean, both of the medical practices. So so my Lime Doc, you can find it at youtube.com with my Lime Doc handles. Same like the my Lime Doc and the my libido doc handles you can find on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, some of them don't overlap, but I have at least one of those on every. So if you want to you want to find me on our social media channel, just use my Lime Doc or my libido doc. And um, Femmeets Fortune, I'm really not doing much with social media. So it's you that's you know, that's basically just largely through referrals and word of mouth and that sort of thing. So you'll mostly just find me on my website there. Okay, very cool. Dr. Dan, this has been amazing. Thank you for being here very much. Yeah, thank you, Todd. It's been fun talking to you. Yeah, before before we turn you loose, I would if you would offer our listeners, one important or impactful question that they could be pondering? You know, the, the thing that I would say with that is what I would recommend is spend a day and watch the questions that you actually already ask yourself. 
So many times we are asking ourselves the wrong questions. The brain's so good at asking whatever question we give it. So like a common question that my clients will often say is like, they'll wake up and in their mind, they'll be like, the first thing that goes through my head is like, what's wrong with me today? How bad is it? You know, so we mm. ask our brain, tell me all the ways my life sucks. The brain's going to do a good job. The brain's here to, to serve us, right? The brain, like, so it's going to basically be like, well, ah, that meal wasn't as good as it could have been. I didn't get my walk in yet, you know, whatever it's going to do, right? So if you go through your day, a very interesting thing to do is to, without judgment, this is just gathering information, write down all of the questions that you ask yourself. And I'm telling you what you're going to find is shocking because I've been doing this exercise for years and I still redo it. I'm like, I thought I knew better than that. Like, I didn't realize that I was still asking myself that question, right? So, and then the idea with that is once you start gaining awareness of that, start bringing more positive questions into your life. It's not that you want to make those questions wrong. Like, it's fine to like do a, and it's, you know, it has its benefits, right? Like, is there something wrong with our bodies? We want to be checking in with that. We should ask ourselves that question, but we also want to ask ourselves like, what is actually right? What is going well? Because that's going to put those nervous system signals in that are good. So it's not saying that those other questions are wrong. We want to get rid of them, but it's saying that we want to bring in a lot more of those positive questions to what's going right. How, you know, how in all the ways, like, what did I enjoy today? Even if it's one thing, you know, even if it's just the way you you put lotion on your skin and it felt like it can be small stuff, right? But that will really help the nervous system also get out of stress, which helps the immune system, helps sleep, helps mood, so many other things. I am going to start asking myself, what questions am I asking myself? (laughs) And, And then I'll follow it up with a question. How can I add more positive questions into that mix and start? Perfect. Thank you, Dr. (laughs) This has been amazing. Thank thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's yeah, truly a pleasure. Um, And, and yeah, possibly would, well, actually I know I would like to uh, schedule a second part and get more into the business, uh, the business side of it, but uh, a visit for another time. Yeah. Sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we, I appreciate you, every one of you and your time. So I'm grateful for you. Before I turn you loose, uh, remember whatever grand vision you've been given, whatever dream God has put in your heart, you can. Until next time, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and live life strong. Peace to you. Well, thank you so much for listening. For even more on turning trials into triumphs and seeking and embracing success, go to toddhalls.life. That's toddhalls.life. And I look forward to serving you. Until next time, be strong, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful. Peace to you.